Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Nathan Bibler, who is the CEO of Envy Labs, who is based out of Orlando, Florida. Nathaniel Bibler, welcome to Maintainable. Hey, thank you. So given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of Maintainable software? Oh, you know, that's kind of a very complicated question. Traits of Maintainable software. So, you know, it kind of covers a lot of things. You know, I think a lot of your past interviewees have touched on a lot of things that I pretty much entirely agree with. You know, I think clarity is a big part of keeping something maintainable. You know, when you take a look at something, do you immediately understand what it's doing? Immediately understand kind of what the goal is and the, the scope and the boundaries of it. Organization, I think, is important. You know, does the does the code base seem to be well organized in a way that, you know, conceptually makes sense for the problem at hand? I mean, there's a lot of things I think that go into maintainable software. Having a robust test suite, I think, is probably the most important thing, which, you know, sadly, I think outside of Ruby seems to be somewhat overlooked. I, I think within the Ruby community, it's it's fairly well baked into our ecosystem. How do you, you and your team talk about technical debt as a, as a metaphor or as a concept? At Envy, you know, we're a consultancy contracting company. You know, we don't own the products that we work on. I, I think to your credit, I've listened to a lot of the podcasts and and I think you've got a pretty good range of, of guests, right? You've got contractors, consultants, you've got product people, you've got authors, you've got all kinds of people. You know, I think the different backgrounds and histories kind of inform that a bit. So, you know, I think when, when we talk about technical debt, you know, there's the kind of generic trade-offs to get something done quickly or efficiently, potentially at the cost of, you know, future problems, future maintenance work, things like that. Which I think Brian Lyles touched on a few episodes ago talking. I think the metaphor he used was like a credit card, right? You you charge against it to get something rapidly done and then and then pay it off later. As long as you can pay it off, your technical debt's relatively low. When it starts to build up is when it becomes a problem. I think that's true. But I think there's kind of more nuance to it than just the technical implementation of something. What we see in a lot of our projects is really sometimes confusion or ambiguity around features or overall product or project directions and goals. So I think a lot of it comes back to kind of communication and to clarity of that communication. Is there kind of a well-informed idea behind something and why it's being done? Or Because like a lot of times, if there is some confusion in there, especially on the developer side, that's when you'll start to see things get implemented in ways that are sometimes either over-engineered or under-engineered or, you know, these other things that we often will kind of manifest as that's technical debt, you know, which I think even, uh, I want to say it was Justin Cyril's, I think, touched on maybe a few podcasts ago with software professionals wanting to feel professional and wanting to not necessarily ask a lot of questions. And sometimes that introduces a lot of misunderstanding, I guess, and things. So, you know, I think a lot of it kind of, there's a balance, right? There's the technical implementation and trade-offs versus the kind of clarity of this feature or the overall product direction over the next week, month, year, whatever. So I think there's a lot of different pieces that kind of go into that. Yeah, I wanted to touch back on, you were kind of talking about communication or maybe even this point around having developers that may, as professionals, feel like maybe they're concerned about whether they're aware of it or not, of asking to clarify some of their assumptions as they're approaching, say, some new features or updating something or building out how they're going to architect something. What are some ways that you and your team have kind of helped navigate that? Do you have advice for your team and developers or yourself as a developer on how to not feel so like concerned about that, I suppose? I think like a lot of things, when people are new to an organization, they mirror what they see around them. And so I think it's often important to show how to behave and how to act, you know, with us, you know, we're, we're consultants. And so like, we need to appear professional, right? We need to appear that we know what we're talking about. Hopefully we do. Uh, certainly in a lot of cases, I would like to think we do. But you know, there's certain ways to approach conversations and problems and questions that if done well, reinforce that. 
if done poorly, erode that. And, you know, I think the standard fallback for a lot of software developers, and this is kind of coming from a, I think many software developers are introverts at the end of the day, myself included. You know, they don't want to appear unprofessional. They don't want to appear that they don't know what they're doing. They don't want to sometimes even rock the boat, right? Like, especially if you're new to a project or new to an organization, you don't want to like go over a a line you didn't know existed, right? Like you, you don't want to overstep your bounds or whatever. So, you know, in a lot of projects where I'm a lead, I'll try to make sure that the rest of the team is in on our weekly conversations we have with our clients. So with all of our clients, we meet with them at least once a week at the beginning of a week to kind of, you know, go over, here's what we're doing. Here's what we did. You know, is this still the direction, whatever. And that's a lot of times where a lot of these kinds of questions and back and forth conversations happen outside of like the initial project discovery. What are we doing? Where are we going? You know, and I think showing people how to ask those questions well is important because it builds their confidence in doing the same. Like, you know, it's okay to ask a question when you see a red flag. It's okay to ask a question if you feel like something's ambiguous. It's okay to highlight if a suggested direction of implementation or feature or whatever has a cascading effect that you feel like will, you know, drastically change the scope of things. These are all very important things to bring up. As a professional, this is what you're here for, right? You're here for your experience and your knowledge. And if a direction is being taken or a suggestion is made that you have a pretty reasonable expectation is going to be detrimental or, you know, exponentially expensive or whatever the deal is, bring it up, right? Because especially in our case, it's not our money, it's not our product. Air it, like say, I know you want to do this. I know this is the way you might want to do it. Here's some other options, ideally, right? Have some other approaches. Or just raise the concern and say, I think there's a better way to go about this. I'm not sure what it is yet. We need to talk about it and kind of, you know, vet that. Or not. Maybe it's a great idea and this is perfect and, you know, we'll move on. (laughs) It could go all over the place. You make a good point about making sure you show, not tell people how to interact with clients or whoever you're, you know, what other teams you might be collaborating with on a project and not being worried about asking questions or asking maybe that dumb question. Or maybe sometimes I often find that even like with my own team is like, there'll be developers that are concerned about asking questions that may have already been answered, maybe in another discussion, because they've also been in, in an experience where they had asked a question that had been answered previously before, and then been kind of on the they got a negative response from some sometimes developers, like just sharing a, a small example from our own team, like about a year ago, we were working with a, a different client, they had their own developers. And we had like some people switch on our team, like who was working on the project, and someone asked a question that maybe had been asked like a month or two before the developer on the other end was like, we already answered that like very abruptly responded, was very kind of abrasive about it. Like, if you go back and look at the notes from last month, I already answered that. And it was kind of like, as much as I would love to be like, well, I wish that they didn't respond like that. Sometimes that does happen. And sometimes we end up interacting with people like that. So how do you navigate that? So I'm like, oh no, what what questions are they now not going to ask? Because they're afraid that they missed some piece of documentation in some document somewhere or email that was sent to somebody else like two months ago. And it's like, there's just that fear that can kind of happen because they kind of got snapped back at one point. And, and you know, it's not always going to be like that. Hopefully 90% of the time, we won't get a response like that. And do you have any suggestions for people on how to frame those types of questions that might help mitigate some of that? Yeah. And I, I think you brought up a lot of points in there that maybe are worth addressing at some point. You know, so you mentioned team rotation, right? So new people come on, people roll off, things like that. How do you transfer knowledge? How do you keep cohesiveness and consistency in those regular communications with the client and have that kind of institutional knowledge about it, right? That's a really difficult thing to do. You mentioned it sounded like that you guys document your calls and, and you know, direction and, and decisions that are made, which we do as well. And so, you know, yes, we've got like these massive repositories of here's all these meeting notes and and things. But like at the end of the day, when you've got thousands of these things, it's unrealistic to think that somebody coming on to a project is going to go back to day one, read through everything to have the sum of all knowledge when they start the project, right? Like that's not reasonable. And then, yeah, just, you know, the negative reaction to a dumb question, I guess, in air quotes. You know, I think that shows up in a lot of different cases. So there's cases, yeah, where, you know, you ask a question that either you didn't know had already been asked or answered and you get a very snappy response. You know, I don't think 
on the developer side, I don't think they did anything wrong, right? I think they actually did exactly right. If you don't know something, get the answer, right? Like we talk about this kind of stuff a lot here, you know, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mess up this wording, but there's basically three questions that we try to ask and make sure we know the answer of before we do any work, right? Which is, what am I working on? You know, how much time or money or whatever do I have to get it done in? You know, do I have everything I need? If you can answer those three things, then you're good to go. If you can't, don't start working, right? Like, if you don't know what it is you're doing and have a very clear idea, don't do the work. If you don't know what the budget is for it, don't do the work, right? (laughs) If you don't have all the materials you need to get it done, don't do the work. Like, do all your prep work, make sure it's ready, and then get it done. So, yeah, you know, I think the negative reaction in my mind, you know, that's more a fault of the person giving that. And I recognize it's a balance, right? Especially as a consultancy, they're, they're a paying client. They, you know, they're paying for this consistency. And because you want to restaff or re-resource something, they shouldn't hurt them in some way. Uh, so I'd certainly recognize it on both sides. Ideally, there's some leniency there, right? Because <laughs> not every, not everything is going to be known by everyone. So I think that can show up in the question answer stuff. I think that can show up, you know, sometimes, especially newer developers, myself included, you know, I have been known to, publish a feature, push a feature into a production application that wasn't necessarily fully baked. And this was many years ago. You know, I pushed production code to a system and it was kind of at the end of a summer or whatever. And, you know, I did this thing and left a week later or whatever to go back to school and uh, found out several months later that that commit caused basically like a unending memory growth that, you know, was relatively slow to manifest, but then really hard to debug later, right? It took them like months to figure out why the system is crashing, so much time later, you know, which then gets people kind of trigger shy, I guess, about doing things. It makes them second guess themselves and and their competency and all these things. So I, I think those two are very similar. To answer your question about, you know, how do you phrase these things? It really depends on the question. So if somebody mentions something and you truly don't know, I don't know that you can phrase it much better than that, right? What do you mean by this? Or, you know, in my case, we work, you know, one of our clients is Cisco. They're a very large organization. They have a lot of departments and groups within them. They, like a lot of organizations, like to speak in acronyms. You know, at the beginning of the project many years ago, I created like an acronym dictionary, right? Like as these things are coming up, I just write them down and I I stop them when they're in the middle of a sentence and like, you know, what is that? What do you mean? Who is that? You know, I kind of stopped that after a while because now I have that knowledge, but I recognize when people come on, they don't. So, you know, asking the question is important. How do you phrase things? in a way that projects confidence. You know, I think there's different avenues toward that. I touched earlier on, you know, if you're going to ask a question, it is especially nice if you can offer some solutions, right? If it's that type of question, why do you want to go about doing it that way? Have you thought about this way or this other way or using the other system? Is there a particular reason you want to do this in-house? You know, all these things. I think if you can offer those solutions, you reinforce some of that professionalism and confidence. You know what you're talking about. You recognize pitfalls. You recognize problem areas, things like that. It also drives conversation because at the end of the day, the client might not have known that that was an option or they might have fully vetted that option. They can tell you why. And once they tell you why, you now know what makes this thing significantly different from something you could buy off the shelf or, or whatever. So I think that comes up a lot. Something I'd be curious, like given your role, kind of heading up an agency like myself, we've been talking about this discussion about having conversations with clients. Like, have you been in scenarios where you felt where maybe someone on your team is asking a question and you're like, I know the answer to that, but they're asking it to the client? So, yeah, we do, you know, we do these weekly calls with our clients. You know, generally the team that is working on the project are the ones participating in that call. And I've certainly been in some of those calls where, you know, there's four or five of us or something sitting around a desk and we're video conferencing or even have the client in the office with us. And somebody at the table asks a question that we know, like, got asked last week or whatever. I like to think that over time, we build a certain rapport with our clients through all of this, like, question, answer, back and forth, suggestion, push and pull, all these kinds of things. You know, the way we go about things, you know, I think at the end of the day, we kind of end up acting a bit like a CTO in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we try to do the best work we can for the resources available. 
And I think we make that very clear as we're working through things. So I think we get a little bit of extra credit when some of these things happen. It's not like a relationship devastation kind of scenario. But yeah, you know, I've definitely had those kind of cringy situations where like you hear the question starting and you know immediately where it's going, right? And you're like, oh, we just did this. You know, sometimes I will let them ask the question just to have it repeated because I don't necessarily know if they're the only one that didn't get that message, right? Maybe somebody else didn't. Sometimes I've seen cases where the client answers it differently than they did last week, right? At which point I will usually jump in and be like, wait, like, here is what you told us. Here was the direction we're going, but you subtly changed this and here's the impact of that. Was that on purpose or like it's getting the clarity? Which I think is, it's important in all of software, right? Like I think at the end of the day, everything revolves around communication. You know, it's communication between product owner and implementer, communication between implementers on the team, communication between, you know, your test suite and what it tells you about the software. Like, I mean, there's, it's all communication. It's true. It's, I was curious about that because I know that I definitely have those cringe moments at times and. I'm always wondering, like, well, how are these meetings going when I'm not part of them? And and I think it's just more of like an internal dialogue. I'm like, oh, shit, did I not relay this to them? Or they're asking a question of the client. And I don't want to cut them off because that's rude. But then I don't want to, like, interrupt the client from responding. And then I also don't want to necessarily, as a consultancy, come across, like, just point like, oh, sorry, that's my bad. I should have communicated that to you last week or what if, if it was previously. It's just like a, those are some fun, awkward scenarios that you have in the where you're just trying to navigate that. Like, what do I do? And so usually I'll just try to bite my tongue. And if the client doesn't have a response to that, right, then I can be like, oh, at least I can follow up with that later or something. But it's still like an interesting scenario where you know there's information that you could share, but want to give the space for other people to do that. Because I don't want them to be afraid that they can't ask those questions either. I think it's, so if they're asking the question, that's a good thing. It's only maybe a, a not so good thing if that was clearly communicated and maybe they were part of the conversation before and they're, they're showing a, something like they're not retaining that. And that's okay too. It's just, there's like, like there could be a, an interesting, challenging thing to navigate for everybody at the table. So absolutely. I mean, you know, it can indicate to a client or product owner, if this is a product or a project or something, a lack of communication, right? On our side of the fence, like did that message not get spread correctly? You know, sometimes it just highlights that person is having a bad day, right? Like something else is on their mind. Sometimes it gives opportunity for further discussion. You know, I, I think on the whole, I, I don't actually think that's a bad thing. I think asking the question, while it might feel a little bit uncomfortable, often exposes something, right? And, and figuring out what that something is, is important. You know, is it a lack of communication on our set of fence? If so, great, we'll fix it, right? We'll figure out what happened and where the failing was and how do we address that? If it is somebody's having a bad day, or has things going on outside of work, right? Which is certainly a realistic thing. Is this bigger than just a short-term problem, right? Is this something we need to be concerned about and, and help with? Or, you know, if it's if it exposes some miscommunication earlier, like, you know, we just, we heard something differently last week than we did this week, or they explained something differently. That's hugely important, right? I mean, you can save tens of hours, hundreds of hours of work and effort going down a path that, one side of the table thought was headed in this direction and the other thought it was going in this direction, right? Which, you know, again, it's it's communication and having these like weekly check-ins. And, you know, I think that even touches on like getting continuous deployment into a project as, as fast as possible because having the end customer validating things as regularly as possible highlights some of these things and, you know, throws up a warning sign as early as possible to say like, hey, you guys are going in the wrong direction or this isn't being done the way I expected it to be done in my head, right? And it helps to drive some of those questions. So as someone that heads up a, an agency and you're working in other people's code, how do you work with your employees on helping them, especially if they're new to your company, learning how to be good guests in someone else's code base? Ah, so yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance to all these things. So I think the answer is slightly different for a new employee versus an old employee coming into an existing code base. But, you know, I think my general response would be as far as like getting acquainted with it, you know, it's get in, look at the test suite, look at the dependencies, look at the size of the project, try to see if those things mismatch with your understanding of the project. You know, do, do you have a 
completely poor understanding of the scope of this thing and it's far more complex than you expected all these things how's the clarity in organization does it make sense can you find the things you think you want to find and then that kind of stuff that like quick sweeping check through everything right like does all of this seem to generally make sense and if it doesn't ask questions it comes back to asking questions like why was it done this way it looks like the team before us did something here that we wouldn't do why right all these kinds of things you know i think it's especially important to never berate code whether it's your own or someone else's or you know produced by your team or inherited from legacy you know i think that is a very important point i've learned over time you don't know the situation the previous people were in you don't know if they were time constrained resource constrained the direction was changed five times this is the outcome of they saw this thing the night before it went to production and redid the entire thing i mean there's so many things that you have no concept of it's easy to look at code and think that you know oh they had this perfect world of years of effort and this was the best they could do that's garbage right like we've been generally lucky that you know i've talked occasionally with people who've kind of inherited some of our projects later on in life you know generally we've had pretty good feedback about it you know, we've certainly had questions from people like why did you go about this but you know i think it just comes from experience of you know being on both sides of the fence being the ones that produced it from kind of the green field or inheriting and working with it just you never fully know what went into it ahead of time don't be mean to it don't speak down about what it was cuz you don't know and sometimes that's actually indicative of what's in the road ahead right like if code is really bad and you can't figure out why it was done that way that could possibly be an indication that the client isn't communicating terribly well i mean there's there's a lot of things that code can say there's a lot of things that you can try to decipher if you know what you're looking for i guess at least questions to ask right it's an interesting process yeah i feel like it's one of the easiest things that a developer could do is critique someone else's code so i feel like it's not like a huge challenge to be able to do that it's far easier probably than to compliment you look at an existing ruby on rails application you're like well things are seem to be where they're supposed to be that's what you expect to find and it's easy to be like well what are they doing over here and why are they still using this old thing and it's like you don't have that understanding of the constraints that they had why they made those decisions it's important to be empathetic towards people that used to be on the project, especially if they're still around in particular. So, yeah. Well, and you never know if they're still around either, right? <laughs> they they could be the one that's kind of managing the project behind the scenes that you don't know about anymore. So, that's true. So, yeah, it could show up in a lot of cases. I agree with you. I think, you know, it's very easy to criticize. It's difficult to be empathetic. But I think it's important to try. And getting back to kind of the professionalism talk, there's there are good ways to ask questions. There's good ways to, and again, criticize is too strong a word, but there's there's good ways to go about trying to understand why something was done the way it was. Like, I think it's perfectly fair to say, I was looking into this part of the application and it seemed like the implementation seemed a lot more complex than what I think I would have done if I were in this situation. You know, can you tell me about it? Were there, did you guys have problems with this? API service? Did you guys have some kind of errors happening? You know, why why is this thing so complicated? You know, can you give me any insight into that? Because, you know, I think people can document projects, people can write, you know, requirements docs, people can do all these things, but they're not really reflective of the of the actual software. They're kind of the perfect world version of a software. And it's not really until you get into the nuts and bolts of it that you see where problems have shown up and errors have arisen and handlers have been put in place and whatever asynchronous jobs have been used because things are you know take too long like there's a million different things that could happen you know when our team has an opportunity to speak with the previous developers on projects that isn't always the case but when we do i think one thing the kind of touching on that professionalism thing one thing that i've been trying to coach my team on is to think about how to frame a question in a way like hey what's kind of like your long-term plan for this area of the code Instead of necessarily like, why did you decide this? Because I've seen people get really weirdly defensive or somewhere. Then they start explaining all the re rationale reasons. And I don't want you to have to feel like you're, as a the other developer, to feel like they're needing to be defensive about their decisions. Because I think there's always sometimes a level of, they're almost slightly ashamed of, at times when they have to share with other people. And, and I'm always like, I don't want to tap into that part. But like, do you have some thoughts about like the long-term potential around this stuff. If, if you had like a couple of weeks just to work on anything to improve the app, what would those few things be? And those they'll tend to quickly like shoot off a couple things. 
And sometimes those things are, they'll bring up, you know, just recently I was talking with uh, one of our newer clients and they have a developer that's been there for 15 years on a, this application. And they're like outlining all these things. And I'm like, I don't really even think those are real big problems. And he's like, this is something that's been like in his world has been holding him up for making a lot of other bigger changes. And I'm like, this doesn't look that bad. And like from what I've seen. And so, so sometimes even they might have like a warped sense of like how big or of an issue something is. And then to them, that's their reality. So I don't want to dismiss that, but it's still like, I'm like, I don't know that you need to worry about that so much. Like even like as one example, I think just before the call, before our interview started, we were talking about, I was dealing with some MySQL issue earlier today with one of my interns and most of our other projects on Postgres, this other client's like, oh, we need to move from MySQL to Postgres. I'm like, but it's, what are you really going to get out of that right now? Like there's so much custom SQL stuff in your app that it's going to be messy to do that. So do we really need to do that right now? That's not a, that doesn't seem like a good first project with you anyways. Anyways, I'm going off on a long tangent, so I'm going to circle this back in. So let's talk a little bit more about Envy Labs. What does your agency kind of focus on? We'll certainly get to that. I think you did, you know, even though there was a little bit of rambling in there, I think it touched on a lot of really good things, right? There was an explicit request to do an explicit action, right? Drop MySQL Postgres. That's pretty cut and dry. Most entry and even like mid-level developers will take that as a task item. And they will do that, right? And and a lot of them will even go the next few steps of recognizing there's, you know, whatever embedded functions or something they need to move over. And, you know, they'll, they'll do more than they just flip the switch, right? They'll figure out what all is affected and fix it, which is great. What a lot of times they won't do is understand why something is there, what the value of replacing it is, and is that value sufficient for the investment, to switch, right? And I think that's kind of, it's a small point, but it's an important one. And when I touched earlier on, like, you know, in a lot of cases, we act kind of like a CTO, you're explaining that behavior. The customer thinks they want something and they explain, and, and this is a lot of times what we end up doing. Somebody will have a request. We will try to understand what that request entails, what they envision the perfect outcome being, why they envision that being successful. And we'll say, okay, well, you know, what is the pain point driving that? What is the successful outcome? Are there other ways to achieve that that maybe are shorter distance or that the application might already do in a slightly different way and we can just kind of shim this thing over? Or, you know, I understand you really want this and it's not something we currently do, but as you're describing it, it's going to be incredibly expensive. Is that worth the investment, right? Now, all these things are, are important because, you know, at the end of the day, the software that we're writing really is kind of helping to drive their business, helping to bring a return on their investment in some way. And hopefully it's a positive return or, or you know, it's a losing situation. The project's going to fold anyway. You know, and I, I think it's a lot of times important to remind people of that because it's very easy for all people, software developers, project owners, all these things. It's very easy to lose sight of kind of the forest through the trees. Right. It's it's very easy to get focused on the small details. You know, you mentioned the the guy having the laundry list of things he didn't think was a problem. Right. And in this case, you know, the metaphor here would be like he had a stone in his shoe and it keeps rubbing him. Right. And, and it's not a big problem and it's relatively easily fixable, but it feels huge to him. Right. Because that's what he's focused on. You know, I think it's important to kind of keep people focused on what is the big picture? What is overall success? You know, is this project still going in the direction it should be going or are we kind of going off, on, you know, going down a rabbit hole, going off on a tangent, whatever. So I think that's important. There's also a bit of a difference in developers when they are working on a product or they work for a product company versus developers that work in contracting and consulting. You know, their their goals are the same, which is to build successful, good software. But I think the resources available to each and the focus points available to each differs fairly dramatically. At Envy, you know, we are on the consultancy side, but we created a while ago a product called Code School. You know, we grew that product out of the consultancy. We staffed it. We funded it. We did all that stuff. We grew it into its own product. We eventually sold it, you know, but through that time, we had both developers on the consultancy side and developers on the product side. So there's a difference in the mentality of the two. You know, I think it's far easier for a product developer to focus on these small details and to dive deep, which isn't really possible for a consultant to do, for a contractor to do, because it's really hard to justify diving really deep on a problem 
when you've got this laundry list of things to do or this fixed amount of time or resource to do it in. You know, I think it's easier in a lot of cases for companies to swallow those costs on a salaried employee because it's a sunk cost. Whereas when they're dealing with a contractor and they're looking at an invoice week to week or month to month, those things matter. I mean, when functionally it's the same thing, right? It costs them the same whether they're paying the person internally or they're paying the contractor to do it. It'll be a similar cost, most likely. But it hurts more, I think, when the contractor does it. And, and, you know, generally the contractors will not be able to dive deep on problems. They're more, you know, breadth versus depth, I guess. So, yeah. And then you also touched on uh, code ownership. You know, I think every software developer has some feeling of ownership of the code they produce for better or worse. You know, I think it's just kind of part of the job. People talk about code as a little bit of an art form. And, you know, I don't think artists like to really be criticized uh, with their art. You know, so I think there is some of that. You know, I think a lot of developers take it as like a personal judgment against them when you criticize or, or not even criticize, but, you know, you review their code and you ask questions about it or you you point out things that could have been done better or differently or whatever. And again, you know, it kind of comes back to like you don't know the situation. It could be that the scope of the problem has changed over time. It could be that the direction of the product has changed over time and more emphasis is now on this feature than was before. You know, there's all kinds of things because like it's not possible to code everything, right? Part of the job as a software developer is to find those boundaries, is to say what's within scope of this problem and what's not. And that changes over time and that changes every time a feature is added or removed and that changes every time the business needs change. That changes potentially every time browsers release a new version, right? I mean, there's there's so many different variables at work that change all of these different boundaries in which you're working. Working from hindsight makes it very easy to say, why did you, right? It's much more difficult to look forward and forecast what needs to be done to be sufficient for tomorrow without wasting a bunch of time and effort going down directions that are never going to happen, right? Because that's also bad. So I think it's it's kind of an interesting balance. And and the code ownership, you know, I think it's inherent to everyone. And I think as, far, as long as everybody understands that and they're sensitive to it, I think it's okay. I think as long as you treat things with some amount of like kid gloves, it's a more fruitful conversation, right? Like, why did you do it this way? Or, or what happened here? You know, or, you know, to your point earlier, if you had unending time and money, where do you see this project going? Like, how would you like to see this thing evolve? Why? Because I think that's very informative of, of what the overall direction and goal is of the project at that point in time, which again, will change tomorrow, next week. We'll be back with our interview with Nathaniel in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, if you know someone in our industry who I should be speaking with, perhaps you, on Maintainable, shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Nathaniel Bibler. If you were to reflect back on, let's say, let's go back to 2010, was there a belief that you had about something that was really important when it comes to software development that as we come up to the end of this decade, you maybe feel less strong about or or maybe even the inverse of that something extremely strong about and opinionated so let's see i would say back to 2010 so in 2010 we were you know largely a rails shop uh, we had a lot of belief in testing and test suites and all that kind of stuff i think that's largely still true i still have a very strong belief in testing you know i think those ideas around what should be testing and what part of testing is valuable have evolved over time. You know, for example, I prefer to have a lot of higher level, you know, acceptance or functional tests that actually kind of explain features to future developers than a lot of unit tests that test boundaries. Not to say they're not valuable, but, you know, I think the value is more on the feature side than than on the unit side. You know, and even to the point that I would argue that it is perfectly fine to use unit testing to drive implementation and drive out functionality, but that it's okay to delete that code later. Like, not all those tests need to live forever. Just because you wrote it doesn't mean you need to maintain it for the next 10 years. 
there's there's a cost to every line of code you write, whether it's production or test. And and if you're not getting a good return on investment from that code, get rid of it. So, you know, I think that is still a strong belief that was there 10 years ago. I think maybe not as strong. We were certainly big on Ruby on Rails and, and the idea of a framework and shared knowledge. You know, I think that lent itself toward us, at least some of us leaning fairly heavily on Ember. So, you know, we started working with Ember really early on. I think it was probably, what is that? Maybe 2011, 2012. It was like 0809, somewhere in there, probably around that time frame. You know, I think that has shown to have been a good decision, even though, you know, 10, whatever, 10 years later at this point, you know, there's maybe a lot of pushback against Ember currently in the world, like React is the winner and why do you deal with Ember and whatever. You know, I would fairly readily point out that there really isn't any other JavaScript framework that's survived since 2012 till today. There really isn't any other framework, especially that you could have written an application in in 2012 and been able to maintain and migrate all the way forward to today. You know, I think there's been a lot of really good, strong effort in the Ember community and a lot of value in the things they've done. You know, I think it reinforced the idea of, you know, frameworks are a good thing and rolling your own while it sounds good on the surface, probably is not at the end of the day. So I think that's been probably more reinforced over time, you know, that having to determine what your application wants to use for a router, for a a templating engine, for a, you know, this, that, the other, ORM thing, like making all those decisions, it's probably not valuable to your product. You know, I think that is all the case. So frameworks, I think are important. Test suites, Certainly important, still important, which part of them I think has changed over time. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I have like flipped sides on. I'm sure there is. Well, you touched on, you know, how your perception of testing has maybe changed a bit over the years and maybe even finding value in removing tests. I've, I've noticed that that seems to be one of the things that developers struggle to feel confident about. If they don't have like a big picture of the whole app, they're like, well, if I get rid of these, then something's going to break and like this would have prevented it for somehow. And I don't have anything, any advice for people listening that might be in that scenario, but it is an interesting thing that there is, there is a cost, not just in terms of like having to maintain it, but just the feedback cycle on your test suite running. And it's not like, I think if there's one thing about that I feel like I've learned or have come to understand over the years is just how expensive that process is, regardless of how many CPUs you have running on your CI's build or whatever. We inherit projects that sometimes take 45 minutes to an hour to get a response, you know, and you're just like, this is, this is not sustainable either. And so, and then there's all these other, like, how do you do that locally? And then, and are you running your test suite? You know, so it's just, if your feedback cycle is really slow because you're spinning up all these browsers too, you know, whatever the case might be, it just, it doesn't feel as nice when you get that brand new app and you're getting those nice little quick feedback cycles when your tests take like seconds or maybe a minute. So it's, there's this other side of being like, oh, now it takes forever. And then people talking to companies and teams that are trying to figure out how to like segment all their tests out and run them in, in parallel in these different systems and, or go to microservices and yes. focus it all down. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. So, you know, I think the the value of a test suite is in building the confidence for the development team and even the product owner of the effectiveness implementation of the application. If the test suite is not building that confidence, I don't see a lot of value in it. Um, you know, if you are not gaining confidence from running it because it's too slow to run the full suite. You're not really benefiting from it. So, you know, to compare that to the other side, traditionally large organizations especially will have QA teams or QA departments, right? And they will author three ring binders of test steps where they manually go through a bunch of different things, right? And and at the end of the day, automated testing is largely just automating that process. And that's usually what I suggest when I do deal with a company that has a QA team. I'm like, can I talk to the QA people, figure out what their tests are just so I can automate them, right? I'm not trying to put them out of a job or anything, but like, it's not valuable to me to throw something over a fence and get feedback a month later or whatever. Let's start by automating what they do and get the feedback. So, you know, that builds the confidence. You know, I think there are side effects of a test suite. You know, it helps you write more modular 
software. It helps you write more quote unquote testable software, which is, you know, can I control the inputs to it and the environment around it and make sure that it behaves in the way I expect given all of these circumstances. I think it helps architect better overall software when you have testable code. But, you know, once you've authored that software, once you've created that software, you know, there's some argument as to how much of those unit tests, especially do you still need, right? You drove out the implementation, you got that benefit out of it, you have confidence that it's there. You certainly want the next developer to have confidence. So you need to leave some of that there, right? You don't want to just delete it all and be like, it worked once, you know, which again is kind of where some of the like overall functional acceptance tests come in, right? Like they, a lot of times will test golden path or high value paths through an application. Here's the things we really care about. We want to make sure they work from an end user perspective or, or whatever. And then a lot of your edge case testing, I think should fall down at the unit level because it's a lot easier to test and set up those scenarios at those smaller portions. But, you know, yeah, there's a lot of cost involved in testing, right? There's writing the code, which takes time. There's whenever a new feature comes in to update all those tests on top of updating the production code to make sure it accounts for it. You know, there's the time waiting for the test to run to get feedback. Based on that feedback, how clear or not is it? How many tests do you need to go back and fix or change after the fact? Like all these affect time and money, right? And, and if you're not getting a good return on that investment, why are you doing it? Right. Like I think everything is open to question, which we've touched on a little bit through this whole talk, right? It's all communication. So what is the test suite communicating to you? Is it communicating confidence? Is it communicating confusion? Is it communicating clarity? Is it, you know, is it doing anything at all for you? If it's not communicating well, why do you have it? That's a a great point there to kind of reflect on for, for developers to think through how, especially if they're even questioning how valuable they are or not, but like, what is the test suite communicating and how can you continue to, if you want to keep investing in that, or how do you make it communicate with you faster or what aspects of it? Just like you should be thinking about it, like in any area of your code. I want to quickly touch on one thing related to, let's say there's some people listening that work on a product team primarily, and their team is feeling a little the perception is they're drowning in technical debt and there's probably no plan to bring on any new hires in the near future, but are worried that because they've been chasing like new features and constantly pushing things out and their backlog keeps growing and maybe they're not in a decision-making role, but maybe someone listening might think, well, maybe there would be some validity to bringing in an external contractor or an agency like, like NV labs to come in and help us address some of these pain points. What advice might you offer them on how to maybe approach that with someone in a stakeholder position there? So if the developer is looking to try to make their life better, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go about that. The first thing would be to try to understand or identify exactly what the pain points are, right? If it's technical debt, and again, I think there's a lot of pieces to that, right? I think there's a difference between implementation and technical debt, like this code was written in a way that makes it difficult for us to change versus feature or product ambiguity or indecisiveness. You know, I think when I think when a product is unclear about what its goal is, that's worse than the technical implementation debt. So, you know, for example, if somebody says, we want to add a feature that does this, but we're not sure that we really want to have it for everybody. Can you put it behind a flag? Now you're not implementing that once, you're implementing that twice. And the rest of the system has to handle it, which sounds okay when you think about it in the short term and doing it once. But now think about it three months, six months, a year, five years from now, that happening 15 or 20 or 30 more times, right? You now have an unmaintainable combination of flags that dictate a very confused product because you can't ever say how this software works or is supposed to work without first asking 50 more questions, right? Well, was this flag on? Was it this kind of user? Did they have this purchase? Was it from this browser? Was it on this network? Were they from this country? Was it like... <laughs> At some point, the the combination of flags becomes so unruly that you literally cannot say how it's supposed to act at any given time, 
right? And so, you know, I think it's important to kind of identify what the pain point is from the developer. Is it if it's just technical, you know, I think it's uh, it's a fair question to say like, hey, we've got this problem. The implementation has these trouble areas in it that either we don't have enough time to address. Can we get more time? We don't have enough expertise to address. Can we bring in some expertise? We would like some time or effort to rethink how this is done because maybe, you know, I think it's natural that software grows somewhat organically. Like features often aren't groundbreaking features, right? It's usually almost band-aid like, like, let's just add this. Let's just add this. Let's just add this. And then, you know, 10 or 15 additions later, you have a whole different product, at which point you probably should go back and like readdress things. So it's important to kind of identify what the pain point is. If it's if it's technical, I would argue it's probably easier to address and fix. You know, I, I think when a developer has to talk to a manager or a whatever, they have to understand the conversation is different. And it's the same with contractors, right? We can talk technical to technical people, but more often than not, we're talking toward business people or management people, right? They care about return on investment. They care about time and delivery. They care about... And and so this actually, I say this, I'm sure at some point to every one of our clients. So the way we work, when we get a client, usually a team is assigned to that client and there is a lead, right? And in most cases, I will be a lead on a project that I'm on. You know, I will generally have a side conversation with one or more people on the other side of the organization to basically say, look, you know, certainly I am here to help write the software, make this thing, whatever it is. At the end of the day, my success is not necessarily writing this software. My success is not delivering this thing, right? My success is making you look good. My success is making your boss tell you that you made the right decision to come work with us, right? And it's not always deliver the software. Sometimes it's make the better decisions, save the money, avoid the bureaucracy. There's a million things that it could be, but like that's my job as a contractor is to make you look good and make the decision for you to work with me beneficial to everybody. And I think that's in some ways the mentality that software developers and introverts in general, like you need to understand that you're talking to somebody that has a different frame of mind than you. And you need to frame your conversation in a way that makes sense to them. It's not okay to expect the other party to come to where you're at. You have to go to where they're out to have the conversation. I think that's a good thought for folks to think about in terms of when they're working with their clients or even like other people in their own organization. It's like, you know, you're touching on the idea of helping make sure that person looks good, like to help validate that their decision making process because they decided to hire you you know, or, or had a, you know, a strong influence in that. And maybe they're the ones that researched and found you and they don't want to look, be known as someone that makes bad decisions. And so you're there to help justify why their decision. So, and if you are at all feeling combative with them, that's, that's not a healthy thing because they're the ones that kind of went out on a limb and are giving you an opportunity to prove yourself because you've sold them and told them that you could do this. So it's like this chain of decision-making that's happening and commitments that need to be happening. And and more often than not, we're the ones at the end of that chain that needs to actually actually deliver something of value that helps escalate back up the chain all the way to, you know, wherever that, I don't go through that whole process there, but you get the idea. It's just, there's, there needs to be some empathy towards that person and want them to succeed. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are supposed to be the hero and you're the you're the one helping guide them there. So, yeah, you know, I think you know at the end of the day, we're all working toward hopefully a common goal, right? And we need clear communication to understand what that goal is, and that everybody's on board with it. We need to make sure everybody is making an effort toward that direction. You know, and it's easy. You know, when you and I talk, we talk about it from the the contractor consulting perspective. You know, for somebody that is an employee at a large company or small company, the same applies, right? I mean. In theory, they have a boss that hired them. Their boss likely has a boss. You know, hopefully the work you're doing shows them that you were valuable and shows their boss that they made a good decision in hiring you, right? All of this, like everything is working together, right? It's all about communication. It's all about trying to make each other look good, right? Like we get there by having maybe a successful product or a successful launch or, you know, making money for the company or or whatever the success criteria is. You know, there's a thousand decisions along the way that get you there. And there's a million opportunities to look good or bad or, 
you know, phrase things correctly or incorrectly that make you look more professional or less professional, more competent, less competent. Like it's dangerous and you're putting yourself out there a little bit, but it's always better to have that conversation and communication than not. And especially if you understand the mindset of the person you're talking to, right? You're going to have a more fruitful conversation, a better outcome from that conversation if you can be empathetic toward them. And so I, I think that's important. You know, I think the sum of all this is just, you know, know who you're talking to, know what they care about, know how the things that you do affect the things they care about, make sure that you are all working in the same direction and toward the same goal. And if any of those things don't line up, there's a problem. Ask a question, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we going this direction? Why do we feel like this is more valuable than that? Why do you have me working on this? Why do you, you know, ask all those questions until you get the clarity, which, you know, comes back to what are you working on? How long do you have to do it? You know, do you have everything you need to get it done? Okay. Or as your advice there, or don't do it until those three questions can be answered. Or don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Have the communication. Try to answer all those questions. So a couple of last questions for you. So what non-software development-related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Non-software-related book. That's a good question. I mean, if this were software-related, I would go Pragmatic Programmer, but I'm sure everybody does. You know, I think outside of my professional life, the books I tend to read are very different. So, you know, I like, I don't know, spy novels and things like that. I think they're interesting. I think, you know, I like... And I've, I've actually seen a lot of other developers, software people in general that, that do this. You know, I like physical things. I like locks. I like Lego. I like, I like building things in the real world. And I, I think that fills a little bit of a need. Like, you know, I enjoy writing software. I really do. I enjoy working with people and, and trying to deliver these things really well. At the end of the day, there's nothing tangible. Like I can't hold something necessarily and like show it to my daughter. I can like show our website. Great. But like there's something about like physical objects, like a nice watch, a nice lock, a nice, you know, whatever, like all these different things I think are really cool. So all that to say, as far as a book outside of software, I mean, I've got, you know, some spy novels and some random things, but you know, I don't know that it pertains as much to, to being, being a better developer. And where can listeners follow your thoughts on software development online? So Envy has a blog. Uh, we are, you know, writing a decent amount about how we do what we do and why we do what we do. So that's a good way to kind of get an idea of our mindset about how software should get written or how to work on the right things, that kind of stuff. You know, I'm also relatively inactive on Twitter and various other places. You know, I think personally, I enjoy, again, more building and coding. So, you know, you'll see me fairly active on GitHub, you know, contributing to open source, opening PRs, doing all kinds of things, pushing back into Ember libraries or Rails Ruby libraries or, you know, a million different things. You know, I just like doing that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'd say the Envy blog is probably the best way to get kind of the general idea of what we do uh, and how we think about things. You know, you might see an occasional tweet or two, but that's probably about it. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Maintainable today, Nathaniel. Oh, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. Oh, 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 oh.